Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Duluale. It's our pleasure to have you be with us. Security, economy and infrastructure will be the top priority areas for my guest on the program today, who aspires to be Nigeria's next president. My guest will support a restructuring of the Federation, as well as massive investments in expanding agriculture value chains to improve employment generation levels and increase national revenue. Newsnight talks to the former special advisor on political affairs to former president Olusha Gwambasunjo and now presidential aspirant on the platform of the People's Redemption Party, PRP, Dr. Usman Bugaje. Dr. Bugaje, welcome to the program. Thank you for your time. It's my great pleasure. Let us, let us begin with uh, a look uh, back at some of your antecedents, uh, uh, some of which we were discussing in the run-up uh, to this. Uh, since between 1999 and uh, today, uh, you, have been, you have traversed uh, quite a number of the political institutions uh, in Nigeria. You were special advisor to former President uh, Olusha Gwabasunjo. You served in the House of Representatives. Uh, you've been acting national secretary of a political party, uh, amongst other things. Of course, you are a scholar, uh, an academician, and all of that. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you think that um, political party development in Nigeria uh, has moved in the direction in which uh, it ought to move, considering that we have spent the last uh, 23 years now uh, in this uh, democratic journey? Uh, I ask that question of someone like you because you've been in PDP, you've been in ACN, uh, and now you're in PRP. Uh, do you think that the party movement, the development of party structure in Nigeria has moved along the right path? I don't think so, unfortunately. Uh, the party <clears throat> is very critical to democracy because it is the platform that organizes people, is a platform that harvests ideas that can produce the kind of development and address the problems of that particular country or society. These political parties that we have, with all their numbers, I'm afraid they have not been uh, able to move in the direction of democracy. One of the major deficits that can easily be mentioned is what is often called internal democracy. It, most of these parties belong to big men who fund it and therefore they dictate the kind of things that happen in the party, including the recruitment processes. In other words, when you come to do primaries from which you do, you go to a general election, those selected to fly the, uh, I mean, to, to, to be the candidates of the party in the general election are often not selected, you know, through an internally democratic processes. And of course, they have become also over time cash and carry. A party should be defined by its content. It should be defined by what it stands for. At the moment, I can't say what does PDP stands for? What does APC stands for? What exactly is the difference between the APC and the PDP? The people who are in PDP now were in APC before. The people who are in APC now were in PDP before. 
And the way they move in and out suggests to you that there is no content in this party. There is nothing that defines a particular, uh, any of these particular parties. So most of these parties, you know, have lost their content if they ever had one. Most of these parties don't have internal democracy. They are governed or dictated by those, you know, money bags who basically fund the party. And the parties themselves do not harvest ideas. You know, popular participation is the essence of political parties. You don't have that popular participation. You do not look at the different sectors of society and try to bring in young people, you bring in disabled, you bring in women, you bring in. I remember when I was in the AC, AC which later became, became ACN, we had to uh, 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 we, 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 we had to amend our constitution in order of the conventions to make sure that those who turn up for the convention, the delegates, include more women and include more young people. Otherwise, it would be dominated by people selected, you know, by those who basically fund the party. So this is a very sad development and it's something that we, we, we have got to correct if we want this democracy to, to, to sustain. There are those who, are, who will be listening to you and saying, how does Dr. Bugaje know that the PRP is going to be any different from uh, the APC or the PDP uh, along the lines that you have already spoken? In the last one year, I, you know, myself and my colleagues have engaged almost all the 18 political parties. And we have discovered that the PRP is the only one that can allow the kind of changes that we think are critical in transforming the parties and making them more democratic and more uh, uh, attractive to those who are more competent and who are more uh, credible. One of the things that we did, we engaged the parties, we sat down with the leadership of the parties and we sat down with others. And many of them either did not understand quite what we want to do, or clearly they don't belong to that kind of wavelength. And you can easily identify when you are talking and you find the person is not really interested in what you're talking about. But the PRP accepted us, wrote us a letter confirming that they accept some of these ideas. And those ideas they did not understand, they set up a committee. And we sat with that committee, we explained to them what we mean by what, what, what we are proposing, and they understood they commended us and they accepted. And that's why we decided to come into the PRP. One of the areas that they said they didn't quite understand because it's something new was a collegiate leadership, a leadership of a team of experts. And this is what we think is best for uh, this country, meaning that the idea of putting one candidate, you know, who, who is going to be either the gubernatorial or pres presidential, and who alone can fix the state or fix the country, you know, is, is something which is not attainable. Therefore, we said, wherever you have a candidate, he must show us his team. He must come with his team. When we elect a candidate, we must see his team. What is his team made up of? Who are the experts around him? Where are the economists around him? Where are the lawyers around him? Where are the uh, uh, engineers? Where are the uh, scientists, social scientists? Where are the experts who can now 
give us the confidence that when this man comes into office, he has competent, capable, and credible Nigerians around him to make sure that they do the right thing. Because if I can't see your team, it's quite risky to, to, to just simply uh, 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 elect you. Because then I am not too sure who is really going to be uh, your key advisors. And, 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 and how can I be sure that these are people are competent? We have said this in the APC. It took six months for them to decide who are going to be the cabinet ministers. By the time they came, we saw that these are people who really do not have the capacity. And they have proved us right by basically destroying the country. You can see where the economy is at the moment. You can see where the issue of security is at the moment. Worse than what you know they took over you know, from the PDP. And this is precisely because people have not paid attention to the credibility and the competence of the team. They're just looking at the individual. But if you ignore the team, then you are taking a risk. And this is why we say every party has to include in its own constitution and, 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 and the processes of, of leadership recruitment, anybody who comes to be a chief executive, especially the presidency of this country, must come with a team of people. They can be 10, they can be more, they can be less, but there has to be a team. And that team has to reflect the diversities in this country. We have to see in this team people coming from different parts of the country. We have to see in this team the gender uh, diversity. We have to see also the generational diversity. This is the inclusion in, in, in the team that will now guarantee inclusion in everything that the uh, uh, government is going to do. Given that scenario, though, uh, as it is now, we are in the political season of selecting candidates. And uh, I, I have it on good authority that you are uh, one of those aspiring to lead, uh, especially at the level of the president, and you want to use uh, the PRP platform uh, for that purpose. Now, uh, what are you telling those who would uh, select you, shall we say, or elect you as the candidate of the party will be the number one task that you, are, that you have should you find yourself in that hot seat? Well, the first and most important thing in this country is security at the moment. Without security, you can't open schools. Without security, you can't run factories. Without security, you can't do agriculture. Without security, you can't do anything literally. Therefore, security is the first and most important thing. You have to settle the issue of security that will automatically allow life to resume, economy to grow, and a number of other things to flow. But without tackling the security issue, you may not be able to get anything done. In fact, if we do not tackle security, the, 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 the little space that is available now is going to shrink and will find the whole uh, uh, population or the whole uh, country itself shrinking because then the bandits and the insurgents will all trap us in, in, in some dwellings and will not be able to do anything. So it's very important that this issue is tackled before any other thing else. Given that also, let us look at, uh, because you mentioned security, let us look at the security situation, particularly first in northern Nigeria before we come down south, because it seems as if the characteristics in both parts are different. In the case of no the northern part, 
we started off with Boko Haram, which was essentially an ideologically based uh, or, or faith-based uh, terrorist group. Uh, but now that has since morphed into something else. We now have bandits who are after territory. We have cattle rustlers. Uh, we have kidnappers and those who are also looking uh, uh, to put one group, uh, set up one group against the other. Because these various attributes have happened up north, of course, we have the southern part where you have secessionist tendencies and groups saying that they will make the country ungovernable if they don't get their way. The question is this. Have we politicized what is essentially an all-for-one approach to security, and that is why we seem not to be able to tackle it? Well, there are a number of things that are fairly clear at the moment, and there are others that you need to investigate further to establish beyond reasonable doubt. Clearly, there is no political will to fight insecurity. Two, there are no equipments. The people who are involved are not properly trained and properly equipped. Three, there is clear problem of integrity of the commanders. And experts in security have said that any war you are fighting and you have commanders who don't, don't have integrity, you can't win that war. To win a war, you need the integrity of your commanders. There is a whole war economy that is developed where so many people are making the killing, you know, making huge amounts of money for no job really done. And this has made them to have, you know, invested interest, I mean, entrenched interest in maintaining the status quo. So these are things that you have to address. The political will comes from the political leadership. They say, once there is a will, there will always be a will. Now that I can assure you, myself and my team have got the will to deal with this issue and to uh, uh, stop it. But of course, you have to understand that in all these insurgencies, bandits, and even the uh, secessionist tendencies that you find in southern parts of the country, all these are inextricably linked to our economy. In fact, the Boko Haram is actually a revolt of the young people against Nigeria's political economy that has literally impoverished them, excluded them. And so, so, so you have to think in terms of the solution also a kind of uh, 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 an economic package that will give hope to young people. And this can be done without too much hassle. It's just that the attention of government is not on the people, it's on itself. How much can they make out of the opportunity that they see? Otherwise, there is enough resources to tackle the issue of joblessness within the uh, uh, community. And if, if time allows, I can give you a number of these you know, options that we have. For example, by the time you fix agricultural value chains, you'll be able to take care of a number of jobs and you would have boosted production. You would have uh, added value to whatever you are producing. So the value of what you produce, what you sell eventually is going to be many times higher than when you sell the raw materials. So that should also increase, increase prosperity. So these are the kind of ways you can create jobs and help the economy 
and then you will stop the recruitment of these uh, people. If you recall, uh, one of these uh, Black American, American writers, James Baldwin, made this very important statement in his book, I think, The Fire Next Time. He said the most dangerous person in any community is somebody who has nothing more to lose. Somebody who has lost everything and he has nothing more to lose. He doesn't mind if, you know, the whole world, you know, uh, uh, blasts or, or, or blows out. Meaning these are the kind of people we are producing by impoverishing the rural community. You are also producing more and more and more dangerous people. So this is just one particular sector of the economy. Another sector, if you look at the young people at the moment, they don't have skills. All of them are trying to escape to Europe in a, this very dangerous journey that they undertake. Unfortunately, they don't have skills, but we have got institutions here that can give these skills that Europe requires. Germany, I understand, is, you know, uh, 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 has a deficit of skilled work of about 400,000. In Britain, just, you know, the drivers of uh, uh, big vehicles, you know, which require to be, I mean, it's a skill that requires to be internationally licensed. Uh, they require something in the region of 50,000. And other countries in Europe require these skills because Europe population, European population is not growing. It's actually falling down. I mean, uh, you can, you can, plot the graph and see when the last Frenchman is going to die. I mean, because, I mean, they're, they're, they're not growing in the, the population. They have aging population that are also creating a lot of uh, huge demand on their economy. So we can fill in the gap. This is a huge opportunity. Even in this uh, 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 Ukraine war, we have an opportunity. There is, there is a problem of wheat production now. The world is looking for wheat. We have the land, we have the water, we have the labor. What are we waiting for? It's just because we have a government that doesn't know what to do. So, so these are the kind of things that can be done. So security is not just a matter of bringing a, 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 a military force. You need military force to curtail it, to contain it, but you need an economy that will be inclusive to basically resolve it finally, to get everybody busy. There are so many. We have institutions here that can provide the skills that Europe needs. And we can do international certification. There are centers that have already been internationally certified where young people can acquire the skills, get international certificate. They will be welcomed in Europe. They will be given visas from here. And they will go as honorable Nigerians. And they will be there. Look at our nurses. How many of our nurses have actually left? How many of our medical doctors have actually left? They are always leaving because they've been trained, these skills are needed. But we have got the, the population, we've got the institutions. We, we, we can train them. And look at what ASO is looking for. And look at what people in government are stealing. You are the people reporting this, you should know this more than I do. What is being stolen, I mean, stolen by one person is like 10 times what ASO is looking for to go back to classroom and start teaching students. So, so these are the kind of things that we can do. And there are lots of ideas. To, to resolve these issues. Before we get into the economics of it, I, I, I still want to push you a bit on the politics of it, and that is in relation to the arguments about, uh, and these arguments went on for a very, very long time and probably have not ended, uh, the difference between uh, uh, zoning and merit. 
Uh, I know that being uh, 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 one of those uh, who were key members uh, of, of the first civilian government where we returned to democratic rule, you are in a good position to look at this uh, from that prism and watch it as it came down. Uh, and again now, because you are aspiring uh, to be president uh, and you are from the northern part of the country where if it is true that zoning was supposed to provide some form of inclusion for everybody, uh, you ought not to be contesting now because the incumbent is also a northern, uh, uh, also a northern candidate uh, and therefore it, it should be the turn of the south. If you take it even further, there are those who say it should be the turn of the southeast. Uh, first, what do you make of this argument and how do you see it playing out? Because already, as you pointed out, the PDP has, you know, put that away uh, and has elected a northerner as its candidate. So, but the basic argument, what do you make of it? Well, I'm, I'm very happy you have raised this point because this is one of the things that have detained Nigerian politics. The idea of where you come from is in the first place unscientific, undemocratic, and unconstitutional. And another point is that, remember, in a democracy, it's a matter of choice. So let whoever wants to come out, come out, and let people choose. That's the whole idea. It's unconstitutional because constitution has not you know, determined. I mean, you don't find zoning in the constitution. The constitution, you know, I mean, does not uh, provide for any zoning. It's the parties that, you know, use zoning as a strategy to get, if you like, votes. If they think that are people who are interested in this and if they put forward this particular person. But look at it this way. We have done zoning in a way. What has actually zoning brought to this country? I mean, we started right from the, 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 the 1999 with some kind of zoning because it was the North that agreed that the presidency should go to the South. And that's how Obasanjo was persuaded to come and, uh, and contest. And I was there when these things were being discussed, right? He finished and then somebody came from the North and it didn't, uh, it didn't last long. Uh, another person came from the South and he did what he did. And then another person came from the north. So you, you, for me, there is sufficient scientific evidence that zoning is a stupid idea because we have done it. But look at where the country is. In the last 23 years or so, I mean, this country has become far more impoverished despite the unprecedented oil revenue that we got during this particular period. We have seen how insecurity has escalated. So these are issues that have detained our democracy and has not allowed us to move forward. Look, look at the person who is coming. What is the antecedent? What is he to offer? Put him in a debate, ask him questions, find out. He has a record, find out that record. What has he done when he held offices that he has held? How clean is he? How corrupt is he? All this you can find out. That is what matters. It's not where you come from. And I've said it severally. I don't want to know where my president comes from. I want to know if my president is competent, if he is credible, and if he has what it takes to fix the problems of this country. That's what is important. If you look at advanced democracies, look at America, for example. You had Bush, the father, who was president. You have Bush, the son, who became president. And did you hear anybody complaining? Look at the UK, two brothers, the Millibans, 
one time contested for the chairman of that of their own political party. They are all, you know, brothers from the same parents. Yet one of them won, one of them lost. Did anybody complain? So in advanced democracies, they have gone beyond this pedestrian thinking. And, and, and we've tried it. It's not working, for goodness sake. So for me, honestly, it's part of that challenge that I said, let me come out, if only to make the point that this idea of where you come from is not important. What is important is what am I, or what anybody who claims or who wants to be elected is capable of doing. And this we should be able to figure out because we have the CVs of these people, we have the records of these people. More importantly, we need to see the team around these people. Let me push the argument a bit further and ask you about the other side of this, which is people saying that uh, it seemed as if this uh, particular republic, uh, the fourth republic of Nigeria, starting from 1999, uh, was, uh, shall we say, fundamentally flawed. And they're talking about the constitution on which it was based. Uh, some of the records have it that even the initial operators, including President Obasanjo, did not have an idea of what was in the constitution until he took office, after he had sworn the oath of office. And that's fundamentally since then, a lot of the problems that you and I have talked about, even in this interview, and which you have uh, mm -hmm. talked, uh, which you have preferred solutions to, and which you have been very scathing of the current government, have proved intractable because the constitution uh, does not allow for movement uh, on many of these subjects. Uh, is that a valid argument, do you think? And are you, will you be one of those who will support rewriting the document uh, to suit uh, more, quote unquote, the aspirations of the people? I'm an advocate for a constitutional reform. I'm an advocate for restructuring. I think this country cannot continue in the way it is at the moment. There are many things we should do. But you see, the process of doing it has been the problem. We are waiting for government all the time to do a national conference, and then from that national conference, and we forget that a lot of these people in government have their own interests. And therefore, you find in the selection of the delegates for the national conference becomes skewed so that their own interest is, uh, is, is protected. What I would want to see, and I've made this proposal in the University of Ibadan a few months back when we had a discussion on restructuring. We don't have to wait for government. We as citizens, we have civil society platforms. We can organize our own conferences. We can organize our own debates. And we can come up with a proposal of what we want to be in our constitution. And we can tell our people in the National Assembly who either consider what we are proposing to you or we will not elect you when you come you know, back next time. It's as simple as that. If we are going to do this, then everybody will sit up. But of course, if I had the opportunity you know, to, to, to be the president of this country, one of the major things I would like to do is to address the issues of restructuring, the issues of constitutional reforms, so that we can have a better constitution. And this will require a lot of people's participation not the kind of closed door things that are done, but even the, 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 the I mean, the, the many people in government, you know, don't even understand. We, we will make it open and we'll make it transparent and we'll see exactly what people, this is what will sustain this country. I mean, keeping to a constitution that people don't understand, they are not comfortable with, 
that doesn't doesn't encourage uh, uh, the integration of this country into one. So, so it's very important that we address this issue. So I'm an advocate for that. But like I said, I don't want the process to be just a government initiative. We need a people's initiative. If we have a government that is responsive, yes, they can then align with the people's initiative and get what needs to be done. That is what makes it a true Nigerian constitution. You don't think that that kind of process, regardless of how it is undertaken, uh, whether it is through the government approach, which we are used to, or through the citizens approach, which you've just uh, referenced, uh, could exacerbate uh, divisions within the country, uh, whether they be religious or ethnic. You don't think so? Because already our situation is, uh, it seems as if there's quite a bit of tension uh, anytime you want to discuss the country, which is why people make comments such as, the unity of Nigeria is non-negotiable, so that already they take the, 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 the heat out of the balloon before you start discussing at all. And that because every time we have tried to discuss, we always flounder on some of these fundamental issues of either Sharia, uh, nationwide application, or the issue of uh, uh, adopting one religion or the other as a state religion, or the dominance of one ethnic group over the other, and so on. On those arguments, we are unable to cross, and therefore we are not even able to get to the more meaningful issues that could speak to the survival and strengthening of the country. Okay, I, I, I think you are, you are right. It's a very uh, significant uh, point to make. And for me, I've said it several times. Part of the obstacles to this is because we have not been able to have an elite consensus as to where we want the country to be. This is what is happening. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the major obstacles. I've tried in my own uh, way to bring in elite from all parts of the country to arrive at a consensus where do we want our country to be in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And we can then, once we have that consensus, then we can come and then work out how best can this happen? Now, the absence of any consensus is what is you know, producing these divergent views. And we can create this consensus. We can craft the consensus. A lot of it has to do with the problem of communication, the problem of proper understanding, the problem of not really speaking to ourselves. We actually shout at ourselves. We abuse ourselves in the social media. We don't seem to be able to communicate effectively. We need a kind of leadership, not only in government, but also in the civil society. And we have uh, members of the seniors, I mean, senior members of civil society, and every occasion I have to attend any uh, occasion because I've been in the civil society all my life, I have made this point and I've told them we need to come together, we need to craft this elite uh, consensus. That will help us to provide because the only any person who formed the majority actually is busy trying to act a living, meaning what really matters to him is his food, his shelter, hospital, school to take his children, good roads to be able to do his business, safety. I mean, basically, this is what he's looking for, right? Whoever will provide this for him, he'll go for that. But it is the elite that often complicate the problem. So we need as elite come together, have a consensus, as to where we want our country to be in the next 10, 20 years. Let's also remember 
that this country is growing in population. And, and, and this population growth is creating, is, is coming with its own problems if we do not plan for it. In the, in, in, at the moment, we're over 200 million, whether it's 220 or 25 or whatever, we are over 200 million. This is the consensus. By UN projection in the next, you know, in, in 2030, which is barely, I mean, less than 10 years from now, we're expected to be 200 and, I mean, to be 300 million, which is a huge number. In, the, in, in 2050, we're expected to be well over 400 million, uh, you know, and that will make us the third largest country after India and China. The, the, the real, you know, uh, uh, the, the leadership of this country, both elite leadership, you know, and political leadership, and even so civil society leadership, and even religious leadership should be looking at these challenges. How do we provide freedom for this? How do we provide school? How do we provide hospital, healthcare? How do we provide uh, 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 jobs? How do we provide, how do we create an economy that can take this, 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 this huge number? These are the big issues which we should be concentrated, not where, whether I am Hausa or Igbo or Yoruba or where I come from, but we are fixated by these because we are not looking at the bigger picture. And the elites need to come out and have a consensus and pro, you know, push those important matters. Because whatever tribe you think you are, Whatever you come from, you are a human being. You are part of a global citizen. And, and there is something that binds us together. Whether you break up the country or you keep it together, whether it's West United, you are a global citizen. You can't escape this globe. And the globe is shrinking. Technology has made us basically living in one country. And therefore, it's silly to start going back to some of these uh, 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 ideas that have detained this country. But we need the elite to have a consensus. And this will send a signal to the ordinary people that what is important is how do we plan our future as a country. In that case, let me now go back to what you said earlier. Uh, what you said, if we had time, we would want to discuss this. Now I want to put you on the hot seat, uh, so, as it, uh, so to speak, about your plans. Uh, what would you do about uh, unemployment, for example, what would you do about the issue of education, with, particularly, uh, with particular reference uh, to out-of-school children and the Almergeri situation in the North? Uh, that's, uh, that's th those twin issues first, uh, before we proceed any further. Because some have said that is a time bomb that we are sitting on and that we don't seem to realize it. You are a social scientist. I know you know what it means. Absolutely, and I'm so happy you raised this question. Even though I would prefer to preface my answer by saying that my policy focus is in three major areas. One, go ahead. Security, security, secondly, economy, and thirdly, infrastructure. Now, economy will take into consideration the aspects you have mentioned, education. Because education is not good enough to just graduate students with certificate. You have to graduate them with the skills that will allow them to find jobs and to live a, 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 a good life. Uh, the issue of infrastructure is not only electricity, roads, including rails, but also education and healthcare. Having said that, let me go back to the specific areas. 
I'm uh, opportuned to actually be leading a group of uh, NGOs, about uh, two dozen, all of whom are working in the area of the girl, I mean, of, of, of the Almajiri child, the children that are out of school. I, and, and we have been working in the last three years. We have been having workshops. We have been having uh, 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 strategy sessions. And we have come up with documents. We have got four different documents now. One of them is simply a bibliography. We did a research to establish everything that has been written online, offline, in the archives, anywhere on the Almajiri issue, conferences. So we have established a full bibliography on every research, every paper that has been written on this Almajiri and every conference that has been done, whether in Nigeria or outside Nigeria. We have also done, we, we, we have about five cohorts. These cohorts, you know, we, we, we sort of you know, disintegrate or we, 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 we sort of broke down the complex issue into five efforts, I mean, five cohorts. One, there is the area of uh, advocacy and uh, parental responsibility. This is something that has to be done for us to eradicate the children out of school phenomena. We have also looked at the curriculum. We have also looked at the different models and we have developed a number of models. We have also looked at the legislative aspect. What legislations do we need to do, both at the state level, at the federal level to ensure, and we have also looked at the case of funding. We have put experts in this field, they have produced these reports, and these reports are available now for implementation. We are trying to have a national uh, a summit on the out-of-school children where we'll bring in the executive arm, the legislative arm, and we have engaged them already. We bring in the traditional institutions, we bring in the religious scholars, we bring in all the stakeholders and present a national plan where everybody will see the role he's going to play. Unless you have got this integrated plan, where everybody will, you know, will, will, will implement his own bit, and there'll be a coordinating monitoring and evaluation center that will do an evaluation every year to say, A, B, C, D have not done their own, or they have done this much, we need, so that we can monitor this for the next 10, 20 years until this problem is over. But we have got a plant and we have, we have visited countries that have had this problem, they have resolved them, Indonesia is one of them, Malaysia is another, Turkey much earlier, Morocco is another, Sudan is another. We have gotten all the best practices in these countries. You go to these countries, you don't find any child out of school at the moment. They used to have them, but they have solved the problem. And these are the kind of best practices we have integrated into the solutions we have. So we have a solution for this. But you see, again, in terms of education, we need to shift from emphasis in universities to skills. China, one of the things that it did that gave it this uh, 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 advantage and boosted its economy, it converted many of its own universities into polytechnics. So they can you know, uh, uh, concentrate on skills. And this is why they are now producing all the goods they are producing. 
If you have an iPhone, you know that nearly 90% of it is all from China. If you have any other thing that, you know, I mean, computers and everything, I don't there because they've got the skills. It's, it's, it's a country of skills. And this is why almost all the production in the world, you know, is, is taking place in China. If you see goods in Europe, lined up in Max and Spencer, if you actually check, you see that they've been produced in China. So the point I'm making is that we need to, you know, skew our educational system to be more in favor of skills. It is these skills that will provide jobs. At the moment, for example, if you look at our agriculture, uh, generally we, 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 we don't do production. I mean, we only do production, we don't do processing. And, and Brazil is one country that has, you know, is leading in, in processing. And because of this, they have created a huge number of jobs. And by just processing, fixing value chains, the amount of job we would create for young people is enormous. In other words, when you produce maize, you don't sell maize just like that. When you produce soya beans, you don't sell soya beans just like that. You crush it, you take out the soya oil, you, 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 you produce the cake, you do a number of things. And these things are going to sell much, much higher than your own uh, soya beans that you export some other places and then you go back importing soya oil. So there are lots of ideas, you know, on the books, which we have produced earlier that we can implement. But you see, it requires the political will, it requires a team of expertise and who have the passion to put this, you know, country on a better trajectory than we are at the moment. At the situation that we have now, uh, some of those I have spoken to have said that whether it be security in education, you yourself have referenced it in answer to the question about out of school children, where you say that other countries that were in Nigeria's position not too long ago have solved some of those problems. And, uh, and therefore, we need to take a look at how they did it and see how we can adopt some of those methods here. Which brings me to foreign policy uh, is one of the areas uh, in which it does appear that we don't pay too much attention when we're discussing politics. Uh, we don't talk about foreign policy initiatives, relations with neighboring countries, uh, and how that impacts on security, the economy, and all of that. Uh, so I, I want to ask you, what is your plan with reference uh, to foreign policy and how that will affect all these things that have been mentioned? Very good. You may remember I was chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House from 2003 to 2007. That's part of the reason yeah. why I'm asking I the had question. Opportunity, I had an opportunity to visit all, well, uh, a good sample of our embassies in Europe, uh, in Africa, in the US, and I've seen what it is. Before you even get to the foreign policy, we are not maintaining our embassies. One of the th things I remember we brought in, which, the, which President Obasanjo accepted to do, which he did, but I think after he left and I left, this thing changed, was that the funding of our embassies will, uh, uh, will be direct from the Ministry of Finance into their own account. Because what we discovered is that once it goes to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you know, they keep cutting part of it. And therefore, you find our embassies in a dilapidated position. You find in, in, in some cases, we, 
we are owing rent, some telephone have been cut, some, in fact, gas and heating has been cut. And, you know, so, so, so we are not even ready to do any foreign policy because if your officers are in distress all the time, looking for loans, I mean, where do they have the mind to actually project, you know, your country? So, so, so this is something which has not changed very much. And it's something that is easy to resolve. But, but, but unfortunately, just like everything is not working here at home, we have included that, you know, I mean, uh, included our missions abroad. And ask any ambassador, you know, ask any foreign uh, officer, you will hear stories, you know, of, of, of real distress, you know, so pitiful. So having said that, foreign policy is basically an extension of your internal policy. It is what you want as a country. It is where you want to be in the next 10, 20 years, 30 years. For example, we want to be a regional power, or we want to be, in fact, an African power. It can be military, it can be economic, it can be uh, uh, an intellectual power, being we want to produce the knowledge economy uh, of Africa. It, you know, once we agree on that, then we take the steps that every country takes to, to, to get there. It is these things that form the foreign policy. And it is these things that actually now spell out to be a foreign, I mean, a regional power, for example, you need to be in good relationship with your neighbors in West Africa. How can you, what can you do to, to, to support them? We have a number of projects, but we are not reaping the real results. We have a lot of people in diaspora, in different, you know, especially in Europe and America, doing very well. We're not utilizing, we're not leveraging that diaspora community. We don't even talk to them. When they, are, when they have problems, we don't even, our embassies abroad don't even listen to them. And, 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 and this is part of the problems we are facing. We're not making the best of what we can. So for me, foreign policy starts at home. It, you know, it, you, you have to decide where you want to be in the world in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Once you decide that, then you now say, okay, what do I need to get there? I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to, I have got a lot of things that will give me comparative and competitive advantages. You know, we, we, we do a sector scan and see what is it that we have. We have lots of things that we can use to leverage our position and to become what we want to become in the committee of nations in this uh, in, 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 in the next 10, 20 years. So for me, uh, foreign policy is, is an extension of internal uh, policy, if you like, and is something that we can craft along the line we agree, and is something that we can implement. At the moment, our foreign policy doesn't even define exactly where we want to be in the next 10, 20 years. They talk about uh, 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 economic diplomacy. They talk about uh, uh, Africa uh, centerpiece of this and that. And it's all jargons. There, there, there is nothing really that, 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 that takes place to, 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 to implement it. In fact, we, we are so soaked in our internal problems that, that, that we are not able to really uh, make any impact you know, outside. Indeed. Uh, thank you very much for your perspective, uh, Dr. Usman Bugaji, and best of luck in your presidential ambition. Uh, we'll be talking to you as time progresses, but thank you for your time today. It's my great pleasure. Thank you very much.
that's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com, to get started. I am Ladi Akere Goodbye.